0: Okay, Sevmarud, I'm genuinely excited for what we get to talk about this week and in the weeks to come. And so just a quick word on where we are in terms of our preaching and what we're going to do from here to the end of the year. For the month of December, we're going to give ourselves to celebrating Christmas and getting ourselves ready by considering the Christmas story. And so we want to consider some of the narratives and scenes around the birth of Jesus as we get ready to celebrate that together at the end of this year. Uh, but between now and then, what we want to do then, this week and in the few weeks to come, is to consider what the Bible has to say about two very important rhythms of our life. And that's the rhythms of work and rest. Work and rest. And so today, I want to preach to you and teach you what the scriptures have to say about work, and you can imagine how exciting that would be, but I'm genuinely excited to talk with you about work, and, and part of that is because till more recently, I don't know that I've ever really given much thought to what the scriptures have to say about work, right? I, I don't know about you, but for me, I've never really thought through what God thinks about work. I've just sort of assumed it as part of the reality of life, right? There's, there's food, and there's eating, and there's death, there's taxes, there's these things that just are part of life, and work is one of them. And I think for most of us, you, you either have a job or you're getting in school so that you can get trained to get a job or you're looking for a job or at worst you're dealing with the reality of not having a job or being out of work. But for most of us, a large part of our life has to do with work. And so uh, I've never really thought through what does God have to say about all those hours of our life. All that stuff that we give ourselves to. And and how does our faith have anything to do with our work? And what does it mean to be a Christian who works or a Christian at work? I, I think the fullest extent I've ever even thought about that might be that, all right, if you're a Christian at work, then you're probably supposed to share your faith with people at work and tell them about Jesus. It means that. But I think I'm discovering it means more than that. And what is that more than that it means? I wonder for you, have you ever thought about your work? Or how do you think about your job? For some of you in this room, I imagine some of you love your job, right? You're doing exactly what you want to do. You find it interesting and engaging. It hits on your talents and your passions. You're doing something that you feel is meaningful to the world. You love the people that you work with. You love the people that you work for. It's sort of your dream job. And for others of you, I would imagine it's the exact opposite of all of that, right? You, you hate this thing. You're not sure why you're there. You, you know why you're there, which is just a paycheck. You're working for a paycheck, or you're working, like our culture says, for the weekend. That's, that's the extent of what you think about work. And, and for many of us, I think we'd probably fall into somewhere in that spectrum, right? Maybe you love your job but have terrible days, or you hate your job but have sometimes good days, and you've got sort of this spectrum we all fall into. The question for all of us is, how should we think about work? And what perspective might the Bible, if any, give about how we should think about our work? And and listen, that's important, right? Because otherwise, you've got this massive chunk of your life that is disconnected from your faith, right? We just preached through the book of Colossians. And the letter of Colossians was about the supremacy of Jesus, over and above everything, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. But then you've got this massive chunk of your life, and you're not sure what Jesus has to do with that part of your life. What connection, if any, does Jesus have to do with your job? I mean, you think about it. You've got 168 hours in a week. You spend about two of those here, and we know God is good with those two hours. But then, what about all the other hours of the week? How, how does God fit into that part? How does God fit in Monday through Friday from 9 to 5 or 3 to 11 or 7 to 7 or wherever your hours are? Uh, where, where is God and how does he fit into you grading papers as an educator? Or are you filling teeth as a dentist? Or you putting up walls as a builder? Or you writing stories as an author? Or you treating patients as a nurse? Where does God fit into all those hours? And I think my suspicion, my hunch is that if you're anything like me, you've almost bought into this thought that God is really interested in the religious stuff that you do. So He really cares about you coming to church or you going to community group or being in GCM or soul care. He's really interested when you read the Bible and when you pray, but there's this whole chunk of your life and of your week that you're not sure God, what He thinks about, if He's all that interested. Or God is very concerned about your work in the church, and at best, he sort of tolerates your work in the world, right? He, he, he's very interested in your work in the church. And at best, he maybe tolerates your work in the world. It's sort of a necessary evil. You've got to eat some way. And so he sort of puts up with it. What I want you to see, what I've begun to see, is that what the Bible teaches is actually the exact opposite. That God is actually supremely concerned with your work, with your actual job deeply cares about it, and that if you could begin to see your work through the lenses of Scripture, I think it would change a whole chunk of your life. And therefore, I think it would change your whole life. And so what we want to do beginning this week is we want to consider these rhythms of work and rest. And for this morning, I've just got something very simple for you. Two thoughts from the Scriptures. Is that first, work is good. And second, your work matters. That's it for today. Work is good, and then specifically, your work, your job matters. That's what I want to show you from God's Word. And so what I want to do is go to the beginning. We want to start at the start. We want to start with the genesis of work, and for that, we're in Genesis chapter 1. This is the passage that was read for us, Genesis chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. While you do, let me just pray for our time and ask God to bless us together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the rule and reign of your Son, Jesus Christ, extends to every corner of both time and space and place and our lives. And so there is not a hidden hour from your sight. And we pray this morning you would show us what Jesus has to say about ruling and reigning over even our work. We pray that the scriptures would give us new lenses by which to see this part of our life and that we would see your wisdom through it all, and that we would hear this and it would change us for your glory and the good of others, which is why you gave us work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first thing. Work is good. If you were to think about work from the lenses of Scripture, if you were to put the Scriptures on like glasses over your eyes, when you look at work, what you'd begin to see is that work is good. And the reason we know that work is good is because the very first person in the Bible that you see doing work is who? Is God. The first worker in the Scriptures is God. The first person at work in the Bible is God. Genesis 1 and 2 is the account of creation. It's the account of how the earth was made, and the land, and the sky, and the seas, and the sun, and the stars. All of that was made, and it's described, it's accounted for as God's work. In fact, you hear that cadence when you read Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. In the span of three verses, I want you to hear the cadence of the word work. Listen to these three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. That He had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Three times in the span of three verses you get that word work and what's surprising is it's associated with God. Commentators say it almost catches you off guard. It catches you by surprise to see that you're introduced to the God of the Bible on the first page as a working-class God. It catches you off guard. It catches you by surprise, particularly when you begin to compare what the Bible was saying compared to some of the other religions and worldviews and faiths in the ancient world when the Bible was written. For example, in the ancient world when the Bible was written, the other worldviews said that work was beneath the God's. That you would never find a God that was doing work. Work was beneath the gods. In fact, the vision of paradise is the gods sitting around and there's no work to be done. And that's a stark contrast from what Genesis 1 presents about the God of the scriptures. Because Genesis 1 says that's not how creation came to be. That's not how this God is. You see, in the other accounts, in the ancient Near East religions, the other accounts was that you had these gods that had these epic battles, and out of their battles came creation. That's not Genesis 1. Genesis 1, on the other hand, is that creation is rather the skillful, intentional, careful, planning, detailed execution of a god who is at work. That's what Genesis 1 shows. A God who is intentional and skillful at managing, at executing his plan. For example, in Genesis 2 verse 7, it shows how the Lord made the man. And it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. Formed, fashioned, shaped. In fact, the verb there is the same verb for a potter working with clay. It's the idea of there's skill here. There's intentionality here. There's creativity here. There's artistry here this is not just some accident that came to be that man was rather formed and shaped by the intentional deliberate work of God and then when creation's done Genesis 1 verse 31 the picture is of a God who stands back from his work surveys all that he has done and is satisfied with a job well done Right? If, if you've ever done something, if you've ever accomplished a task you set out to do, if you've ever gotten some good work done, you know that feeling of standing back and seeing what your hands have brought together and being delighted in it. Well, the scriptures say that rhythm in your heart began because God, in Genesis 1.31, stood back, saw all that he had made, and was delighted in it. What did he say? He looked at it and he said, it was very Good. A worker that is satisfied in his product, in his job well done. This is the vision that the scriptures give you of the creator God. And so as soon as the Bible starts talking about anything, it talks about work. And specifically, it talks about a God who is at work. In fact, the rhythm given in Genesis 1 is a God who gets up in the morning and works until the end of the day when he calls it a night and is done and does it again and again, and again. And what Genesis 1 is giving you is the rhythm that's going to mark your life as well. It's saying just as God had this rhythm of work, and work, and work, and then rest, just like God has that rhythm, your lives are going to be infused with that rhythm as well. There's going to be work, and there's going to be rest. And then there's going to be more work to do, and then there's going to be rest. As God's rhythm went, so yours will go as well. So then... It's no surprise that when God made human beings in His own image, He made them to work. He gave them a job. He gave them work to do. In fact, this is the passage that Kurt read for us. Listen to it again. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, Genesis is saying, Look, God made man in his own image. Now, A library of books have been written on just that one word, image, and what it means. Now, part of what it means is that when God made us, he was making human beings as his representative on the earth. Right In the ancient world, you would have kings who would make their own image and leave it in a certain area as a sign that they had authority over that area. They would make an idol, an image of theirs, as a sign of their authority. Well, God left an idol on the earth. It was us. We are the image of God left on the earth that bear God's stamp of approval and God's authority, and God entrusted to us to carry out His work in the world. That is that we bear His image. We're to reflect back to God the reality of who He is, and part of that is that we were wired to work. God is essentially saying, As I have done, so I'm making you in my image so that now you will do. You will do in the world what I have done in the world. And then when you get to Genesis 2, Genesis 2 is sort of like a take your son to work day. Right? Because that's what Genesis 2 is. He makes the boy and he gives him a job. He says, Adam, here, what I have done is what you're going to do. And when you read Genesis 2, that's exactly what you get. For example, one of the things the Lord does is he names He made the morning and he called it day. He made the evening. He called it night. And guess what he says Adam's going to do? Genesis 2 verse 18, he parades all the animals and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air before Adam. And he says, here's what your job is. You're going to name them. Now why? Is it because God couldn't have come up with names? He had just named day and night. He had named them. But he says, here's my son. Here's one born in my image, bearing my image. He's going to do in the world what I do in the world. Or then in Genesis 2 verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in the east. So he got in the dirt and he planted a garden. So guess what Adam's going to do? Genesis 2 verse 15, And the Lord God put the man that he had made in the garden to work it and keep it. He's saying, Adam, here's what I've done. You've got this vast, undeveloped world, and out of this undeveloped, resource-rich, potential-laden world, I have fashioned a garden. Right? You've got all this earth undeveloped. You could just imagine it just springing into existence. I have fashioned. I've brought order to this. I've made a garden. So now, Adam, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do the same thing. You're going to bring order to it. In fact, all of creation is essentially God bringing order to chaos. If you remember the first chapter of Genesis, it says, and the earth was formless and void. It was dark. It was formless and void. And what God began to do is He began to draw distinctions and bring order out of that chaos. He he said, there's going to be light, and there's going to be darkness. There's going to be land, and there's going to be sea. There's going to be sun, and there's going to be moon. He, He began to draw distinctions, and He brought order into the chaos. And He says, Adam... What I did in the world is what you now, as one who bears my image, is going to do in the world. You are going to bring order out of chaos. That's that's what subdue is essentially meaning. Subdue is the idea, you're going to take this resource-rich, potential-laden earth, and just like I formed an orderly garden, right? That is, I didn't pave over it and make a parking lot, nor did I not touch it and preserve it, I rearranged things, I dug, I planted so that life would emerge and fruit would emerge and food would emerge and beauty would emerge so that your life might be enriched. That is what you're going to do the whole world over. Which is, by the way, why you need to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to need lots of image bearers if you're going to make sure that this whole world is filled with subduing, with with beauty that comes and life that comes and goodness that comes. You see, theologians call this the cultural mandate, that what God was saying was more than just go have babies. God was saying, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. I want you to rearrange things. I want you to cause life and beauty to emerge. What I want you to do is I want civilization. I want art. I want music. I want beauty. I want those things in the world. So you are going to rearrange things so that it might come just like a gardener does. This is the call. Just like a gardener would cultivate life and beauty and enrich your life and mine, so is the call of God on Adam. And hear me, friends, this is the sort of DNA of all work. This is the pattern of all work, that all work exists to reflect back to God who he is and to serve others, to enrich life, to bring about life, to be good for others. This is what is at the heart of God's design for work. It's to reflect back to God who he is and to serve others. That's the pattern for all work. And that means that I need you to see this. Here's here's what I want you to take away. That means that work was a part of life in paradise. Would you get that? Work was a part of life in paradise. Meaning work didn't come because of sin. Sin comes in Genesis 3. We haven't gotten there. We'll get there next week. As to why work is so hard. But this is just Genesis 1 and 2. And in the world without sin, there's work to do. Would you hear that? That means that in a perfect world, there was and would be work to do. In a perfect world, you'd have something to do on Monday morning. In a perfect, sin-free, perfect, not-fallen world, you'd have something to do on Tuesday and Wednesday and to Friday and Saturday. In a perfect world, there'd be work to do because this is how God made us. This is how God wired us. We were designed to work. Would you hear me? And deep down, we all know that that's true. Deep down, you know that you were designed with this desire to do something meaningful in the world. What I mean is this. If tomorrow you hit the lotto and you won $10 million, okay? You won $10 million. I'm telling you that after a year of you traveling and exploring culture and eating whatever you want and having as many vacations as you want, there would be this ache in your heart to do something meaningful with your life. You want $10 million? I guarantee you in two years you'd be doing volunteer work because you'd have this ache in your soul that needs to do something meaningful. It's wired in us because God made us that way. He put that seed in us that we exist with this longing. This week, as part of my sermon research, I went and saw the movie The Intern, right? And the movie The Intern is a 70-year-old man, and the entire premise of the movie is a a 70-year-old man who's the VP of his company, comes to the end of his retirement, he's traveled, he's done hobbies, he's learned languages. After all that stuff, he goes and gets a job as a new intern because he can't just do nothing. He's got to find something to contribute to, some role to play, something meaningful to do with his life. It's wired in us, right? And and so it's wired in us because this is who God is and we bear his image. And if you began to see this, it could change what happens for you tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, you could begin to see that what you're doing is participating in the same kinds of things that God was doing and created you to do. When you tomorrow as a marriage counselor, when you go to work and you help that couple work through their conflict and all their stress, what you're doing is you're bringing order out of chaos. When you're at home with the kids and you do that pile of dishes or that pile of laundry or sweep that broom across the floor, you're bringing order out of chaos. When you make music as a musician. You're arranging random notes together so that something beautiful might emerge the way that a gardener rearranges the raw materials so that something beautiful might occur. When you're a teacher and you're working with that student and he doesn't get that concept and you're working tirelessly, you're doing the same kind of working with this untapped potential work that God called Adam to do as well. You see, when you begin to see it, you begin to see that your work is good. Because if you put on the lens of scriptures, the first thing that the scriptures would say about work is that work is good. You were put here to work. But here's the second thing I want you to hear. The second thing is not only is work good generally, but your work matters specifically. The second thing I want you to hear is not only is work good generally, but your work matters specifically. Listen to me. I'm talking about your actual job. I'm saying to you, your job matters. Your specific job, not your neighbor's job, not the person who's sitting next to your job. Your job matters. If you look through the lens of scriptures, you'd see not only is work good, but that your work matters. Now, let's think through that. If I said all legitimate work, and I'm adding that word legitimate so that You can't be a drug dealer to the glory of God and the good of others. All legitimate work, all legitimate work matters. Now, if I said that, I don't think there's anything earth shattering there. I think everybody in our culture and our world would agree. But deep down, and we would never say this out loud, we've got this sneaky suspicion in us that sure, all work matters, but some work matters more than others. And the implication of that sneaky suspicion is and therefore the people who do that work matter more than the people who do other work. We never say it out loud. We're too polite to say that. But we've got this sneaky suspicion in us that there's this sort of class in the world that all work matters, sure, but some work matters more than other work. And the people who do that work matter more than the people who do other work. That kind of thinking, I want you to know, is as old as Adam as well. In fact, in the ancient world, in the time when the Bible was written, for example, in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek and Roman culture, there was sort of this thought, and the thought of the day was that your body was bad, your soul is good. That's not in the Bible, I want you to know. The the Greco-Roman thought was your body was bad, and so the implication was physical is not good, spiritual is what matters. And so, for example, when death happened, they welcomed death because your soul could finally be free away from this mortal coil and the lesser baser earth. And that kind of thinking spilled into work. And so the thought became that the kind of work that matters is sort of the invisible work, the spiritual work, the world of intangibles and ideas. And so the jobs that mattered are the knowledge-based jobs. It's the jobs of philosophers and thinkers and artists and politicians. That's the work that matters. Now, on the other hand, opposite of that is the work of your hands, the work of the earth. There's craftsmen and tradesmen and and servants, and there's manual labor. And you wouldn't say it, but there's knowledge-based jobs, and then there's manual jobs. There's the jobs of the mind and there's the crafts of the hand. And there was this clear distinction about what mattered, right? And and listen, we would find that kind of primitive thinking so primitive and barbaric, except we got the same thing. We have white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs. And nobody says it out loud, but you you know that that exists. There's white-collar professional jobs and then there's blue-collar jobs. There's plumbers and there's physicians. There's electricians, and there's engineers. There's pharmacists, and there's farmers. And without anyone saying a word, we've got sort of wired into, well, all work matters. But some work, and the people who do that work, matter more than others. And listen, even within the church, we've got division. It may not necessarily be white collar, blue collar, though that too can seep in, God forbid. But we have our own division. Our own division in the church about work is there's sacred work and there's secular work. Right? We too have a strong dividing line. There's sacred work and there's secular work. There's spiritual work that happens here and there's secular work that happens there. And we all know that God is very concerned with the work that happens here and God sort of tolerates the work that happens there. Right? There's a a strong division. I mean, I, I could prove it to you. If I said to you, He's doing the Lord's work. My guess is for 9 out of 10 of you, you automatically are thinking about a pastor or a priest or a minister or a missionary. If I say she's got a calling on her life, 9 out of 10 of you are assuming that she's getting ready to go overseas on missions. Because we've got a deep distinction about there's secular work in the world and there's spiritual work in the church. And so within the church, there's pastors and physicians. There's missionaries and managers in business. There's so on. There's this deep divide. And, and, And what we begin to believe is God is very concerned with your spiritual life. So he loves when you come to church and when you're in GCM and when you read the Bible and when you pray and God sort of at best is watching while you have the other part of your life, your career, your ambitions, your hobbies, all that secular stuff. And here's what I want you to hear. The scriptures come and obliterate all of that. The Bible comes and obliterates all of that. Obliterates what the world is thinking out there and what the religious might be thinking in here. The Bible obliterates all of that and says all legitimate work matters. All legitimate work matters. It has value. It has dignity. Let me give you two quick reasons why. Here's the first. Here's why in the scriptures all work matters. The first is because the Bible does not pit spirit versus body. The Bible doesn't pit soul versus body. The Bible doesn't pit physical versus spiritual. In creation and in the incarnation and in the resurrection, God does all that he can to communicate to us the physical world matters. Did you hear me? In creation, in the incarnation, in the resurrection, God does everything he can to convince us the physical world matters. In creation, God created the physical world. And he stamped his approval over it and he said, this is very good. And would you even think of this? What kind of worker is God? In Genesis, when he creates, he does invisible, intangible intellectual work he he literally says something let there be and there is but isn't it an encouragement to every craftsman to every tradesman to know but also in genesis is a god who does manual labor he spoke everything into existence then why in chapter two does he get into the ground and fashion the man out of dust why does he get into the ground and plant a garden You have this wonderful picture of our creator God who speaks very worlds into existence with just his word and who fashions man with manual labor. It's a wonderful proclamation to us that your work matters. So when an electrician comes home or a mechanic comes home with a dirty hand and he has to wipe the grease off, he should see the work of God in his hands and know that he's not very far off from the rhythm of Genesis 2 in creation, but also in the incarnation. When God decided that we human beings who had sinned against him were not going to be cast off into judgment, but that he himself was going to come and rescue us, how did he do that? He didn't just vacuum our souls up to heaven. No, he took a body and came down to earth. What greater stamp of approval of the body could God give than that he put himself in one? That Jesus took on flesh and came down in a body. And then would you even think of this. And when he came down, how did he come down? I read a commentator who said, you know, if the Romans were expecting God to visit the earth, they would have expected some kind of statesman. If the Greeks thought that God was coming down to the earth, they would have expected some kind of thinker or philosopher. If the Jews expected a God, maybe they would have expected a, a rabbi or a priest. Could you imagine that the Lord of heaven and earth came down swinging a hammer, working as a carpenter for 30 years? Would you you take that in for a second? That the Lord of heaven and earth did not see it beneath him to spend 30 years of his life, which we don't even have any scripture for, but 30 years of his life swinging a hammer, making tables and chairs. And can you imagine the kind of tables and chairs that came out of that shop in Nazareth? That's what the Lord did. And so he gives incredible worth and value to all work. And not only in creation and not only in the incarnation, but when this Jesus dies for our sins, the sign of his victory over sin is what? His resurrection. And how does he resurrect? It's not that the soul of Jesus flies off into heaven, but that his body comes back to life. I mean, what other stamp of approval can God put than to say God has put himself in flesh and he's never taking it off. He's always, Jesus will always have a body. And the resurrection is a physical resurrection. A a world in which mountains are going to come back and rivers are going to be there. A world in which you can touch things because God is saying physical and spiritual will forever be one. And what that means is there is no I've got sacred things and secular things. Spiritual things and physical things. I am God over all of it is the announcement of the scriptures. I rule over all of it. I have a plan for all of it. I'm redeeming all of it. In creation, in the incarnation, in the resurrection, God is communicating to us all of this matters. And so your work in this matters. But here's the second reason. And this one has just stunned me. I need you to get this. If you don't get anything else, take this one in. Your work matters. Your work, your particular job has dignity because, get this, God is at work through your work. God is at work through your work. In fact, the way one person said it is, God is masking his work through your work. The person who probably thought through this and advanced this idea that we need to recover badly was Martin Luther, Luther the great reformer. And he said this, he said, look, when Genesis 1 and 2 is done, God's work of creation finished. He rested. But then after that, God's work of providence continues, right? Providence, that is, God protecting and providing and caring for and sustaining. All of that goes on because God is still at work, right? In fact, at the beginning of service today, we read from Psalm 104. And Psalm 104 is, you make the rain to come and bread to grow and wine that hardens, gladdens the heart of man. All that work Providing, protecting, sustaining, nourishing, keeping, all that work is your providential work. Now, here's what Luther said. But in that providential work, God works in providence through your work. He masks his work through your work. For example, here's how Luther said it. Luther said, if you're a Christian, you've been taught to pray the Lord's Prayer so part of that is you say, God, give us this day our daily bread. Okay? Now, when you sit down, every Christian sits down at that meal and thanks God for his daily bread. But here's Luther's question. How did that bread get there? When a Christian bows his head and says, thank you, God, for this daily bread, how did that bread get there? And Luther began to think through it and said, I guess when I'm thanking God for my daily bread, I'm also thanking God for the farmer who put the seed in the ground and harvested the grain and watered the crop and took it in. I guess I'm also thanking God for the company that made that bread and the baker who baked it. And I guess I'm also thanking God for the truck driver who drove it and for the man who built the road for him to drive on and for the people who worked at the tolls for him to drive through that road. And I guess I'm also thanking God for the companies that work in manufacturing and distribution. And I guess I'm also thanking God for the grocery store and the stock boy who stocks the shelves. I'm thanking God all the way down to the cashier that rang me up when I say, thank you, God, for my daily bread. Luther's point is, do you not see that it's almost as if God has swept up the entire economic system into bringing you your daily bread? That God is at work in a thousand intricate woven ways through the work of others to bless you. That the way that God loves you is through the work of others. And the way that God loves others is through your work. That your work is a part of what God is doing in the earth to provide, to protect, to sustain his people. I mean, would you think through that? God could feed his people. If you've read the stories of the Old Testament, he had bread fall down from heaven. And yet... How has God chosen to exercise feeding us? It's it's restaurants and chefs and cooks and waitresses and people who make kitchens and people who make stoves and people who make plates and napkins and dishes. God can heal his people, right? Have you read through the New Testament? All the miracles, Jesus just touches someone, Jesus just thinks something, someone's healed. But how has God providentially chosen in our world to heal It's through hospitals and administrators and MDs and DOs and LPNs and RNs and N.P.s and all the people with all their initials. It's their work by which God heals his people. God could protect his people. You read the accounts of Israel. God himself will just show up in an army and it will be done. But how does God protect his people providentially now? Luther said, there's a psalm that says, oh Lord, would you make our walls secure and the iron bars safe? And Luther said, well, how does that happen? Except for the man who made the iron bars and built the walls and the policemen who patrol and the military and the government and the politicians and the city planners and the urban engineers and all their vocations which come together. God could clothe his people. Adam and Eve sin. In one moment, they're clothed by God himself. But how has God providentially chosen to do that? Except through fashion designers and textiles and manufacturers and companies and advertisers and all the rest. Do you not see that it's through the vocation of a web of thousands and millions of people by which God sustains your life? By which he providentially cares for you. And when you begin to get that, you begin to see your work and the work of others different. You begin to see it all different. You begin to see that God has wired into work this reflection of the glory of who He is and this serving one another. He's wired into work sort of this interdependence that we need one another. You begin to see other people's vocation because you begin to realize, I can't live without other people working. Would you hear that? You can't look down at work anymore, at someone else's work. You can't live without someone else working. That's how God wired the whole thing. I mean, would you think of this? This afternoon, when you leave church, likely you're going to go, you're going to sit down at a chair and eat a sandwich for lunch. Could you just think about what it would take for you to do that on your own? Just pull out a chair, sit down at the chair, and eat a sandwich. One author said, Would you think of what it would take for you to make a chair? How would that begin? You're going to cut down a tree, and and with what? You're going to make the tools to cut down that tree, and once you've cut it down, how are you going to drag it away? With what kind of vehicle will you create to drag that away, and then the mill to work that lumber, and then to craft that thing? The author said it would take you, in short, no less than a lifetime or two for you to make that chair. And then you eat that sandwich. I watched on Facebook this viral video of this man who made a sandwich from scratch, Use no one else, which wasn't true, but made a sandwich from scratch. And so this video is him. He plants a garden. He digs. He waters. He waits. Then he walks to the ocean so that he can boil seawater and, and get some salt. He milks a cow. He makes the cheese. He harvests the grain. He bakes the bread. He kills, plucks, cooks his own chicken. It took him six months and $1,500 to make one sandwich, which he ate and he went, blah. Six months and $1,500 to make one sandwich from scratch. And this afternoon, you're going to pull out a chair, you're going to sit down, you're going to bow your head, and you're going to thank God for lunch without a thought of the thousands and millions of things that God put together to give you lunch this afternoon. And when you get that, it changes everything so that when I bow my head to pray, I thank God for this God who designed all this because he loves me for my good. It changes everything. Here's the takeaway. If you are doing legitimate work, your work is good and your work matters because God is at work in and through your work. Luther was one who said, God milks the cow through the vocation of the milkmaid. That whatever your job is, if it's legitimate work, it's swept up into what God is doing in the world. That means, hear me, tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, you are going to do the Lord's work. Tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, you're getting up to do sacred stuff. That it's not just the pastor, or the priest, or the missionary, or the Bible teacher that has a calling from God tomorrow morning. You do. Because your work matters to God. It's part of how he has designed the world that he owns. Now, my hope is you'll begin to think through this. And if you do, there's all kinds of implications and applications. Let me quickly give you three. Three quick implications and applications if you were to believe this. Here's the first. If you begin to see that work is good and your work matters, It will change how you see your work and how you see the work of others. It will change from the inside out that you have no superiority over anyone. And it will change that you have no reason to envy someone else. It will begin to obliterate the statuses that our world creates. And it will show us all of this work is your calling. So here's the point. You are to do what God has called you to do. When I have a toothache, or my car isn't starting, or when I need a haircut, I'm so thankful that not everyone is a pastor. And not everyone's a missionary or a Bible teacher. Aren't you glad for the things that God has called us to? Right? And that's the point. Whatever God has called you to, you do that. Are you supposed to preach? Then don't wait tables. But are you supposed to wait tables? Then don't preach. Do whatever it is that God has called you to the glory of God and the good of others. This is why he made work. And you'll begin to see things different. This afternoon, you'll see your waitress different if you begin to view work as God views work. Here's the second. Because God is at work in and through your work, you should do your work with excellence. Do your work with excellence. You're ultimately working for God as a part of what he's doing in the world. So do your work with excellence. Let me read you something Luther said because he says it better than I ever could. He says this. He says, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she sings a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. I love that. And then he says... The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Don't you love that? I don't baptize my work as a cobbler by putting little crosses on shoes, but rather I say this reflects the glory of God and is good for this world, and so thank God for this work, and I do it well unto the glory of God. That's what it means to be a Christian shoemaker. Right? You do your work with excellence. Two weeks ago, I had forgotten when we went to India to submit a payment for our kids' insurance, for their health insurance. So I get a notice saying the kids' health insurance is cancelled. And you can imagine the panic in my heart when I hear that my two little children have no insurance. So I call this lady. I got on the other line the nicest human being in all of America. Right. She was so kind and so empathetic. She understood my panic of the kids not having insurance. She talked to me, and she said, look, if your payment has already been sent in, I'll watch for it. I want you to know everything's going to be okay. A week went by on Friday without me calling by her own initiative. She called me back just to say, I want you to know I've been watching it. Your payment did come through. It didn't process yet, but everything's going to be okay. As soon as it is, I'll give you a call. Tuesday the following week, without my initiative, she called me again during the lunch hour just to let me know. I watched it. It went through. Your kids have insurance. You're totally fine. I literally asked her, could I speak to your supervisor? And she wasn't on the phone, so I left a message saying, listen, I just want you to know everybody should do their job the way that this woman did hers. Right? She, she genuinely enriched my life. She, she cared for what mattered to me and it matters in the big scope of all that God's doing. You and I should do our work with excellence as unto the Lord and for the good of others. Let me read you one more quote. This is by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. She says this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be a drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. So here's what she's saying. Usually all the church's advice for you as you work is make sure you don't do bad things there and make sure you eventually come back here. And she says, hear this. What the church should be telling that carpenter is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables do not you love that? That what you do Monday through Friday, nine to five, is not tolerated by God, but is part of God's calling on your life. And it matters. So do it excellently. Third and finally, here's the last thing I want to say. And that's just coming back to the good news of our faith, which is that all work has dignity, but your dignity doesn't come from your work. All work has dignity, but I need you to hear this. Your dignity doesn't come from your work whether out there in the world or even in here in the church, I want you to know God sees no difference between the mom or the monk or the manager in business. God doesn't have a different grade for them. And that's because our standing with God ultimately is not because of our work, but because of Jesus' work for us. That's the gospel, the Christian good news. The Christian good news is ultimately you're standing in the world And you're standing before God who matters most is not because of your work, but rather because of Jesus' work for you. Your dignity doesn't come from your work, though your work has dignity. Your dignity comes from Jesus' work finished for you. The greatest work that was ever done was not done by your hands, but was rather done by Jesus whose hands were stretched out on that cross. And when it was stretched out on that cross, as a man who had been given a job to do, when he was done, he cried out from that cross, it is finished. Meaning my work is done. Job well done. It's, It's over. I've accomplished what God has sent me to accomplish. And we stand in that work. You don't stand in your own work. You stand in that work. And if you stand in that work, you have every bit of dignity you will ever need. Because the work that matters most was done for us by God through Christ on the cross. He took our sins. Right? We had sin, and through Jesus who lived that perfect life and went to the cross for our sins. All that sin was put on him. All your failures and flaws were put on him. So now you don't have to work for that. Jesus has worked for you and you can actually rest in his finished work. You don't have to achieve dignity. You just receive dignity from Jesus' finished work for you because he has accomplished the work that matters most. So hear this this morning and let God Put on your eyes the lens of scripture that you might see all of this different. You might see that work is good, that your work matters, and that though your work has dignity, your work doesn't give you that dignity. Jesus' work does. Let's pray together.